0: This podcast is also part of a pod course, which is available for credit on speechtherapypd.com. All you need to do is register for the course, complete the requirements, and you will receive credit. Speechtherapypd.com is a video continuing education company, a certified ASHA CE provider. Char Bouchard here. True story. I just hung up the phone with an SLP that had attended an on-site seminar. She said she loved the seminar, but she forgot to fill out her ASHA participant form. Sounds easy enough, huh? Uh Uh-uh. The seminar was three months ago, and all the paperwork had been submitted, and ASHA doesn't take late forms. So I said, Linda, you have to file an appeal with ASHA. Then she said, This is a nightmare. I drove two hours to get there, two hours to get home, and now I have to file an appeal? I felt for her. And then I said, Linda, have you ever heard of SpeechTherapyPD.com? She said, No. I said, just get your CEUs online, girl. That's what I do. You don't have to leave home. They have over 500 hours of video, a huge variety of topics for SLPs that work with children and adults. And if you don't want to watch a video, then listen to the pod courses and get your CEUs that way. Then she said, they're pretty expensive, right? I said, uh, no. Their plans start at $89 a year, for heaven's sake. And then I said, Do you want the icing on the cake? SpeechTherapyPD.com has scheduled a CEU cruise next summer to Italy and Greece. Woohoo! She said, Okay, I'm looking them up right now. And so should you. SpeechTherapyPD.com. Check them out. Tell your friends. You'll be glad you did. Hello, and welcome to the Speech Link, brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I'm your host, Shara Beauchart, speech language pathologist, and I invite you to join us as we share practical strategies to take your therapy to the next level. We'll talk with experienced experts who've achieved extraordinary results and teach you exactly what you need to do to do the same. Ready? Here we go. As you may or or may not know, or may or may not care, (laughs) I have done a bunch of seminars, at at least 2,000 of them. And I did a seminar about a year or so ago in Visalia, California. And there was this outgoing gal with spiky hair and her friend sitting on the front row. And if you've ever attended one of my seminars, usually we're down to business, but sometimes, and and typically it depends if I'm sleep deprived or not, we get to laughing and we have a good time. Well, this was one of those times. And the gal with the spiky hair, the good sense of humor, who asked great questions and shared some really practical ideas, stuck in my mind. And she's here today. She told me that she's going to be retiring in a couple of years from the schools. And she's chosen today to share some of the pertinent points that she's learned in her 36 years as an SLP in the schools. I think you'll be able to relate. Here we go. My guest today is Erica DelVal. And she completed her undergraduate training in communicative disorders at Pacific University in Forest Grove, Oregon. Then she went straight through to graduate school at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire and graduated with her master's in communicative disorders. Right out of school, she got a position at Kern County Superintendent of Schools in Bakersfield, California, where she spent eight years in various districts and specialized classes. Then she moved to Visalia Unified School District in California, and she's worked there for the past 29 years. In addition, for a few years during her time in Visalia, she also worked after school in a private practice, but she says she loves the schools, and most of her experience has been with what she calls her first love, preschool and elementary-aged kids, although she has worked at the junior high and high school levels as well. She says that although she's seen and experienced a lot of changes through the years, it's been a great and fulfilling
1: 38-year career. <laughs> Welcome to the speech link, Erica. Thank you, Shar. It's really good to be here. Um, I'm excited, a little nervous, but um, really happy to be here.
0: Yes. Well, I think it's going to go well. And, uh, you know, I remember meeting you at a seminar in Visalia and you were there in the front row asking great questions. And, you know, I just, I thought, no, there is a good therapist. (laughs) So it's great to work with you and to hear your expertise. So I'm glad to hear that you've enjoyed your career because I feel the same way. And Eric, if I could describe in a few words what I think this hour will be, I would choose the words reflective and passing the baton. You're going to look back and share things with us that you wish someone had shared with you. (laughs) And I bet at the very least, a lot of us will be able to relate to that. So let's begin at the beginning, back in the early years, right after your university days. Do you feel that you are prepared for working in the real world?
1: Well, thanks, Char. I think I felt prepared from an academic standpoint, but I specifically remember my very first job in a very small town at that time called Fraser Park, California. Up in the mountains, it's um, on the grapevine as you head over to L.A., and I came into a situation that was less than ideal in terms of how service had been provided previously. And I'm living alone on the top of a mountain, it seemed like. And I remember that feeling of having started work, being new, trying to get all the pieces in place of who do, who do I have in a meeting? What do I do? How many kids? And I thought, this is not what they told me it would be like in grad school, and I was kind of caught off guard that, wait a minute, they said it would just be so natural and flow together. And I really learned at that point that every situation you walk into is different. And I really feel that I had the academics and the knowledge base, but it was definitely a huge learning curve for me to figure out communicating with parents and communicating with staff and working with kids and getting all those pieces put together that until you're in the real world, you don't really know how to do that. And it's learned by going along and and trying things and seeing what works and seeing what doesn't work. Mm-hmm. So um, one of the things I wanted to cover um, was, I think the biggest thing as I reflect back is learning to listen. And I know that sounds kind of trite, you know, well, we talk and we listen and we can look at it that way. But for me, as I've gone through the years, that is so important. As an SLP, I love to talk. (laughs) So by providence, I'm probably in the right field because talking obviously has not ever been an issue. But sometimes I'm not the best listener. And I found that as I've gone along, how important it is to listen to the parents, to identify with them that what their concern is for their child is they want help. So they don't want lots of test scores. They don't want lots of um, jargon that we get into if we're in a meeting to say your child can do this and this and this. They really want it simplified. How are you going to help my child? What can I do? Am I doing the right thing? They want to be validated. I've seen many parents feel like it must be my fault they're not talking. It must be something I've not done. And so I try when I listen to a parent when I first meet them to let them know this is a no-judgment zone What you're sharing with me is just gonna enable me to get to know your child better and to be able to work with them better. So don't feel like I'm critiquing your parenting or how you respond. It's just, I'm here to be a partner with you. And I think that that's really important. And I found that as I went along, I was able to listen better than when I first started. Um, And as I learned to listen better, I figured out how to listen to the child, that there were many days that it really isn't about correcting the R or how many repetitions you get. And, you know, did they finish my little plan of, you know, we're going to get to 80% accuracy, but it's about listening to the child. And there are some days with kids they just need to know that you're a safe place and that you care about them and they are important and they need to share little things that are on their hearts and it really is okay when that happens to let that happen and not be i was very consumed at the beginning of oh i've got to get this percentage and okay next 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 (laughs) and as i learned how to listen I learned to kind of go with the flow and that made my therapy so much more successful because I wasn't just somebody there bulldozing through and letting the child know we're doing this, 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 and this, and it's going to be, you know, perfect. But I validated who they were and that then resulted in kids coming up to me and, you know, giving me a hug. Am I going to speech today? Are you going to see me today? How come you didn't see me? All those things that let me know that I had made a connection with kids. And I would just encourage you, if you're new in the field, if you've been in it a while, to step back and say, you know, what's going on today? What helped me to see what's going on with my kids? And there will be days that you won't get the 80%. You won't get 25 responses or whatever you're looking for. And to be okay with that. So I think that's really important. And listening to your staff as well. um, Teachers have a lot on their plates today. When I look at the changes from when I started in 1981 to we're now in almost 2019, classrooms are so different and kids have so many issues. And back in the day, I would say, oh, it's developmental. They'll be fine. And it really was. But I can tell you in the last... I don't know, six, seven years that I have never, I never say that anymore. In my gut, I'll say, hmm, there's something going on here. I don't know what, but something is not right here. And I'm not going to be the one to say, oh, it'll be fine, because it may not be. And I would rather take the time, get to know the child, get to know the parent, and really listen to the teacher Like, what are you seeing that's of concern to you? And certainly there are brand new teachers who, you know, maybe recommend kids that you can say, I think they'll be fine. But we've got so many kids in the system now that they're complex. There's so much going on with them that we need to validate our teachers. You know, they're looking for support and help. And just even going in and saying to a teacher, um, I have quite a few children now that are in general education that are on the autism spectrum and just going in and saying, how can I be a support to you? Um, Because when you've got almost 30 kids in a class and you're teaching kindergarten and you have an autistic child who's very bright and it is appropriate they be in a general education class, but they're blurting out and they're talking louder than everybody else and they're having meltdowns and crying and screaming and you're just trying to get the curriculum taught that you're being told to teach and you have all this going on that I think teachers you will have a much um, more successful time if you come alongside to be a help rather than I'm gonna tell you how it's done and I thought that at the beginning I'm the expert I'm gonna tell you what you need to do in terms of fixing this child's speech rather than now I look at it and say how can I best help you um, so I really think that's been really key for me as to, it's a skill. Learning how to listen is a definite skill and it takes time. Some days I get it and some days I don't. I'm not a good listener and I think, oh, I need to listen. So I always try and keep that kind of in the forefront of what I think about when I'm on the job each day. Okay, well, let me see and let me hear what I need to, to be more successful, Good philosophy. Yeah. The second um, thing I wanted to share with people is really be open to keep on learning. Um, I still at times think, oh, I know how to do this. But the longer I've worked, the more I've seen I cannot be an expert on everything. I just can't. And I will have kids that are just puzzles. And I sat in a meeting yesterday and had to agree with the parent that, yeah, your son, it's I'm not sure what's going on. I see this and this, and we don't have a quick answer for it. Um, One of the ways that I've really tried to keep on learning is just be open, that we don't know it all. We do know things in our field, but that isn't everything. And so I try to attend um, my districts around here, and the county office provide free trainings that you can take off and go to. Um, there's certainly many, many um, conventions that you can attend. Um, Maybe if you're fortunate enough to have a district that's able to pay for you to attend, that's always a plus. There's so much now available online that you can just sit down and you can pick something. Hey, I, I think I need a refresher on this or on that. And probably one of the best things that I've discovered is meeting with my colleagues, we I have a group of ladies that we call it our third Thursday group. And every third Thursday of the month, we get together after work, we go have a bite to eat and we talk about kids that we're like, I have this student and this is what's going on. I don't know what to do. What do you think? And we all share with each other. And a couple of the girls are, um, you know, closer to my age, so we've worked a really long time, but we also have some that are new in the field. So they're bringing a whole different perspective of talking about things that we sure didn't cover when I went to school, you know, in terms of autism or, you know, the latest technology or how are you using your iPad to work with kids to get the most benefit all of those kinds of things. And I think as we've come along to be able to say, it's okay, I don't know it all. It really is. But you know what? I've got resources and other people. And and you can be accepting and know that there's no judgment that, what, you don't know that? No, we can't be expected to know all that. So I'm learning that you really need to avail yourself um, of many things that are out there and ask questions. You know, that's the best way that I found to kind of air it out and say, this is what I see. And sometimes just talking about it with another colleague, I come up with an answer. I'll say, oh, that is what they're doing. Maybe I should try this. And I found it very um, kind of stimulating to be like, okay, that gives me a new view on this student that, you know, there's days that you kind of wish they would move to another school that you would like to help them pack. And you're kind of done with them. (laughs) Um, But to know that you have other people that have those same kinds of kids. So I try to be open to that. And I try when um, new people email on during on our work email and say hey what should I do about this I try to be open to that and not just say oh I don't have time to answer that and you know click delete I try to imagine what I felt like when I started and I didn't have those relationships um I worked like I said way up in Fraser Park it was an hour to Bakersfield I basically was all by myself um, and we would get together once a month. I think there was 45 of us cause we, we service the entire County of Kern, but we didn't have time to really share. You go to a meeting once a month and everybody talks about whatever they need to talk about and what your boss wants to say, but really look for a few people that you can, you can touch base with and say, Hey, what do you guys think about this? And I've even, um, Learn that, you know, it's really okay to have one of your colleagues, hey, do you have some time? Could you just come over and look at this kid with me? Like, what do you see? And what would you suggest? And that's been super valuable for me. So right. we always can learn. And I think the thing that was hardest for me was to learn was how do you find a balance between work and your, your life? Because we all have a life, Um Early on, I was consumed with getting everything done, getting it perfect, getting every I dotted, every T crossed. And I've realized as I've gone along, um, certainly, Char, I'm sure you know, paperwork has dramatically increased. Um, And there's always that, you know, do I do paperwork and get everything in so we don't get dinged by the state, that we're out of compliance? Or do I, um, you know, see the kids and it's such a difficult balance, but um, I've learned that there will always be paperwork when I started um, IEPs were three pages. They were on NCR paper, which some of you may not know what that is, but it was like four different colors, and you wrote on it with your pen, and it printed through so you didn't have to make copies, and parents got a pink copy, and right, the district right. office got the white copy, and then you got <laughs> right. the golden rod copy kind of a thing. And that was it. And when a student was done with services, you basically talked to the parent and said, they're doing great. What do you think? And the parent said, I think they're great. And you said, thank you so much. And you were done. Well, today, I think the minimum is 11 pages on a student for something really simple, like correcting an R. And it's all computerized, which is a benefit. It's certainly a lot faster than handwriting. But There will always be paperwork. There will always be something that you didn't quite get done. So I've learned to give myself permission to say, I am not going to catch up. I'm not going to be ahead. So I look at, what do I need done today? And then I don't worry about it. So, Erica, do you
0: have any tips or tricks for us for getting the paperwork done and, you know, remaining on our schedules with our kids and so on? Do you have any tips or tricks, you know, as far as streamlining that paperwork?
1: Um, One of the things I like to do is kind of think ahead. What needs to be done today and doing it to the best that I can, but not spending an over amount of time on it, not getting so technical or um, so involved with it that I lose sight of what, what do I really want to communicate in this report or what do I really want to let parents know. Um, initially, I wanted everything perfect and it's not going to happen. Right. So let me say, let me just, okay. So you make a list of
0: things that you want to do. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then your expectations of fulfilling the paperwork, you back off from them a little bit so that it's not perfect, but you get them done. Right. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Exactly right.
1: Okay. All right. So those are two good things. Give me another one. Um, I try to be flexible. And realize that stuff comes up during the day that you have no control over, whether a parent shows up unexpectedly or you're called in to assist on a a student that, which happens to me in one of my schools because I'm in the main office and something may be happening and you're called to help out with that. Mm -hmm. And so I may not see a child that day that I had planned to see. So I look at my schedule and see, okay, when I'm here the next day, I bet I could group that child with this student or with that student. So I'm still able to provide that service. But I, I understand that I have to be flexible and bendable and that I have a plan, but it may not go the way I plan. And that is okay. And I try to the best of my ability to see my kids, work with them, help them feel good about themselves and hey, you're making improvement. But I also know that there'll be times I don't get to see them. And that's the real world. Right, right. Perfect world is you see them every single time you said you would, you get everything done. And it just doesn't work that way. It doesn't
0: always happen, does it? You know, I'm thinking, too, that having a really good relationship with the teachers so that if you do need to reschedule or bring a child in one time at another time, that teacher is going to know and trust that, hey, you are doing the best for your schedule (laughs) as well as for the child's and that you've got to make up that time. That's correct. Yeah. And... As a therapist in the schools, you have a lot of plates spinning, and one of them is the child, you know, one of them is the paperwork, but also that teacher can make or break, because if they say, I'm sorry, you can't take
1: that kid to make up that session, then you're stuck. Right. And I try to communicate ahead of time if I know something's coming up, especially like, hey, I'm not going to be there that day. Not only for the teacher, but I have students that as they get older, they'll come and show up. And then if I'm not there, the next time they'll see me, they'll say, where were you? I came and you weren't here. And so not only are they a little disappointed, but it's keeping that line of communication open. And sometimes I go to get kids, they may be taking a test. Sometimes I go to get them and it's fun Friday and the child looks at you like, I'm reading with my sixth grade buddy. You can tell in their face, I really don't want to go with you. And so I'm flexible enough to say, you know what, I will get you at this time today. So within my schedule, I try and be um have some times where I can kind of adjust as I need to. And I think as long as you communicate with the teacher and let them know, and you will learn which teachers are more flexible because some will be and some are not flexible. And so you kind of have to say, okay, you know, Mrs. Smith, she's pretty good. She goes with the flow. She doesn't have any issues with that, but Mrs. Johnson I need to really be on point. And if I said I was seeing her kids at this time, I need to see them at this time and try to, try to keep that as closely to that schedule as you can, because then it develops um, a respect for your job and what you do with kids. And it makes it so much easier than being the specialist that, well, they never came to my class and they never see my kids and I don't know what they're doing And so those teachers, I really go at the beginning of the year when I make a schedule and I'll say, I used to say, what time is the best time for me to see your child? And then I learned an even better way is to say, what times are not times that I should be pulling Susie? There you go. Because they'll give you the best time. Well, that may be everybody else's best time. And the reality is the IEP says you have to see those kids. So it's much easier to say, what times do you absolutely not want me taking them? You know, is it from nine to 945 when you're doing um, reading intervention or it's, you know, whatever the topic might be. And it helps them kind of look at, because they look at what would be a time that as they see that student, what's most important for them. And um, sometimes when you say, when would you like me to, they'll just pick a random time. Well, how about if you take them this time? And that may not be the best time. So using that, what time is not, absolutely not a time I could pull them. Um, and it gives them a buy-in into it that you're not just passing out a schedule and saying, this is when I'm going to work with this group. Right. And I also try to group kids at a grade level. So that if I have two kids from the same class, maybe I can put them together. Do they exactly fit? But can I make it work? And by fit, I mean maybe you've got one working on some articulation and the other one looks like language or it's fluency. And you're thinking, well, these don't go together. But as a teacher, it is so much easier for them if you can take them together and you figure out how you're going to address both their needs but then you're not disrupting with one child going out then they come back and then you pull another one and they go out and they come back because that teacher is then responsible for trying to catch that child up and make sure that whatever they missed that they're still going to get and so i've had teachers be a lot happier If you can take them at the same time so it's less disruption for the kids, it's less disruption for the teacher, then you can imagine having um, kids going in and out and in and out. And in today's classes, kids get a lot of services, whether it's counseling or it's academic support or it's reading intervention provided by, you know, just the school site or if it's, you know, whatever, whatever needing to go to an outside therapy appointment, kids are coming and going. And that is really hard on teachers who, you know, have to teach a certain thing and it has to get done. Um, So I find that really um, has been of great help when I look at it from a different standpoint, not this works best for me, but what might work best for the teacher and for the student.
0: Hey, busy SLP, Shar here. Here's a tip from me to you. Every week, become a lot more informed. Sign up for Therapy Matters at charboshart.com. It's free. Learn our tick and language tips and techniques and tons of ideas for making your school therapy life easier and more effective. I've been a therapist for 30 plus years, and I love to share what I've learned. Sign up for Therapy Matters, read it or listen to it at charboshart.com. You'll be glad you did because the therapy that you do matters. Sign up now. Let me ask you, and let's get into therapy a little bit, and let's preface it with going back to those right after the university days, how has your therapy changed
1: over the years? Well, it's certainly changed from what's available to do therapy. Um, I come from the era that, you know, we obviously didn't have internet and we used to cut out magazine pictures and laminate them. And you were looking for pictures that children could use as a language stimulus, like tell me what's happening in this picture. Um, and certainly now there are so many other things to use for that. But I've also seen, I think the biggest thing is trying to stay in touch with what's going on in the classroom. And if they're studying a particular topic or um, working on something, how can I incorporate that so that what they're doing in the classroom is connected to what I'm doing in therapy? So by that, let's say if they're studying animal habitats and I'm working on articulation, Are there animals or are there things that I could tie in that they could be practicing their sound, but that relates to what they're actually doing in class? Um, I think kids get much more out of it because then you're accessing their prior knowledge and you're also supporting the knowledge that they're gaining. When I first started, I saw myself as very separate from the classroom and what goes on. Um, You know, if I'm working on S, these are my S cards and, you know, I'm not paying attention, whether it fits into anything they're doing. And certainly there are still times that, yes, these are my S cards and we're working on S blends. And so these are the words that are going to work. But I try also during my therapy to really look at how can this fit back into what they talk about. And you can see as kids go along, they're like, wow, oh, we talked about that in class. And they're um, very much more aware and we're almost like we're helping them make those connections. And I think when we can do that, that it stays with them, that it's not this isolated, oh, I come see the speech lady and she's going to listen to me make this sound. So when I'm in her room, it's magic and I try my best and I make that sound and then I leave and they sound like they've never been to my room. But I think if we can make the connection that, hey, we're doing habitats and this animal has my speech sounds in it, Oh, I remember I need to say it this way I think that's how it's changed and I've also found that less is more whether it's writing a goal I don't need 15 goals because the reality is I can't address that many things the reality is that I need less goals so that I can really focus trying to do too much it's not gonna happen So I don't make a goal that I'm gonna work on seven sounds because I won't be able to do that. I am gonna pick the two sounds that would be the best to make them more understandable in the real world. Do you do that with language? I do it with language as well. And I've really found um, probably my favorite material is Mr. Potato Head. Um, You can get the tiny ones You can get ones that are called, um, I think they call them like tater tots or little taters. Cute. They are perfect for preschool hands. The regular size potato head is a little bit unwielding for, you know, four and five year olds to hang on to and not have them fly across the table. There are so many things in language that I found that that is my go to, especially on the first couple sessions. I meet a new student They love it. Even my older kids will look at some of my toys and be like, do we get to play today? And there will be sessions. I allow them when it's maybe five minutes left. You can choose what you want to play with because they enjoy doing that. And today in our classes, I don't think kids get to play enough. But certainly I found, even in language, what would be the best thing to focus on that's going to make them be able to communicate more and make the biggest difference or, you know, we could say the biggest bang for your buck. And knowing that you can't do everything, I try and get it into more bite-sized pieces than when I first started. You know, seven goals is not realistic. Two is much more realistic. And that doesn't mean um, one of my friends has often shared with me when she shares with parents, I didn't write a goal for this, let's say the L sound, we're going to work on these two sounds, but that doesn't mean I won't correct that sound when I hear it. It just means that my focus is going to be much more on the K and the G or whatever sound, or even it's going to be much more focused on let's get that final sound in so that we improve how easy they are to understand. I think that's very, very important. And I still, even today, as I write an IEP, I think What's most important? How can I make this child socially fit in better, um, improve their speech and make it doable for myself and the child so that I don't get to um, progress reports, which will be coming up in a couple weeks and go, oh, we didn't really do anything on that one. Hmm. What am I going to tell the parent? But if you narrow it down and have a couple of goals, it's a lot easier And knowing too, you will have parents, you have to learn to read your parents, you will have parents that want you to address everything. And so it's kind of a balance of how you can share with parents, this is what we're working on, this is why we're working on it. And doesn't mean we won't address in an informal way the other issues, but this is what's realistic. And really, it goes back to the parents want help. And if you can present it in a way that means that, yes, I'm working with your child, I'm helping them, and then this is what you can do, because we're really a facilitator. We're not the end-all, be-all answer. Just coming to speech, I'm not the fix-it, the fairy godmother who sprinkles the fairy dust and, you know, they miraculously turn into Cinderella. That does not happen. It's really a co-partnership with teacher and especially with parent to empower them You have the skills. This is what you can do to help support what I'm doing. And that's how kids grow and learn. Very encouraging.
0: Uh, Let's get back to your materials. You had mentioned Mr. Potato Head, and he's been around for a long time and I think we've all used him, and I love him too, and the kids love him. He's just a time honored tradition with kids. Do you have other materials? And then I do want to get into therapy as far as some of your tricks and tips for therapy, but let's cover some of your favorite materials.
1: Well, one of my, it's a, I won't say it's a new favorite, but it's probably in the last four to five years. I've had lots of kids come that are completely unintelligible. And having done this as long as I have, I think I'm fairly good at figuring out the sound pattern. And so maybe the teacher's like, I can't understand them. And I'm like, oh, they're doing you know T for K and D for G, and they're leaving the S off. So once you learn the pattern of what the child is doing, you're able to, they just, it seems miraculous, but it's like, oh, I understood what they said. But one of my new favorite picture cards is from the Kaufman speech praxis cards. And the thing I like about them, she has a level one and a level two of speech cards that really break it down for kids. They're bright, they're colorful, they're big. She allows you that you can photocopy them which I have done and sent home with parents to practice but she really breaks down so if you're working with a child and you're really starting at the basic level on syllables or consonant vowel consonant words the things that she has available have really been a help in helping me provide that to the parents but also they're engaging for the child And the other um, piece that she has with her program that has been super helpful is she provides, um, I'm trying to think how to explain it, but almost like signs to tactile cues for the child on how to make that sound. I've had quite a few preschoolers that have been unable to make the connection of this is where my mouth needs to go, this is what I need to feel. And so an example would be, um, so making the T sound that you put your finger in front of your mouth, um, just like you would be wanting to say shh, be quiet, but you just pull it away quickly and you go "T t, t, t. And sometimes for a child who doesn't put T at the end of a word, you can practice and by just giving them that cue to remember and having them put their finger up so they get hat, bat, cat. Very, very helpful. And I've been able to send home those little um, signs, as I call them, little motor cues has been so helpful. And then eventually you fade those. it's They're not going to go around touching their lips every time, but I've seen more as the older I've gotten, kids need a variety of um, options. Obviously, just telling them the word has not worked. Otherwise, they would not be in your program. Because I think for the most parents, for the most part, parents, um, you know, correct, no, that's not how we say it, say it this way. Well, if they were able to say it that way, they probably would. But when you get a child whose system is so disordered that you need another way. And it's a lot more fun for them because how frustrating would it be in their mind? They've said it correctly. When they go to say bat and they say ba, and you're going, no, say bat. And they go ba. I'm sure in their little minds are thinking, I said what you asked me to say. And you're listening going, no, you didn't. I'm going to say it louder Well, that doesn't help, but giving them a motor cue where their little hands are involved with it, it is so fun to see. I have a girl right now in preschool. She does it by herself now, Mm -hmm. and then she gets that sound, and then eventually we won't be using the finger. But when we started, she had no idea that, oh, there's a sound there, and she's not of an age that just by pointing, here's the letter, look, you need to put a sound there, But certainly when she was able to touch her lips and go, it connected for her. And I've had another student. It was the same way. He came at the age of three. Really, there was a connection missing on how do I make those sounds that you're asking me to make. And he went from not talking at all to in a couple of years in a general ed kindergarten, graduated from speech totally fine. And I'll never forget the day that the little boy and and mom worked with him. She came to every session. She was part of the session. She did the work I asked her to do at home. I will never forget the day. And even as I say this, I get little goosebumps about it. The day that he said, mom, for the very first time, Wow. Was, and we both looked at each other and I was like, did you hear that? And she had tears in her eyes and I had tears in my eyes and I had even, um, done some taping of him on my iPad and, this is another thing I always try and remind parents, do you remember when, and most parents you're, they're in the business of, you know, what's next, what's next, what's next. But to be able to go back and say, I remember when Billy did this, he was under the table, he wouldn't do anything. And I remember showing this little boy the um, video and he just looked at it like, who is that? And I said, Juan, this is you. This is where we started from. And the mom was like, I forgot. So it's encouraging for them to know, oh, yeah, that's where we started. When they think, are we ever going to be done with speech? I've had parents say, how much longer is he going to have to work with you? And not as a critique to me, but they look at it and they don't see the progress. And they think part of our job is let's share the progress they are progressing. You're just maybe looking at it, you know, kind of through a really closed view. Let me give you the whole picture. So I really like Nancy Kaufman's information. I like her um, KSPT, her little, um, it's called the Kaufman speech praxis test. It's all based on imitation, but it really gives you much short, much like the um, probes that you have for articulation, Char. It gives you Where can they make the sound? And if they're not making it, what are they doing? And it's so helpful because it breaks it down that you can really see. Can they make it in isolation? Yes. Can they make it with a vowel sound? Yes. So can they do consonant-vowel? Can they do vowel-consonant? Can they do consonant-vowel-consonant? It really shows you the breakdown. And that's so helpful because if you know where they can make it, then you're going to want to start therapy from there. And then you can go back and measure it and go, I have a student that's graduating from her R sound. And when I got her in fourth grade, she was like, you could just tell. She had a different therapist. It hadn't worked out well. She was looking at me like very bright girl in a private school. Like, I I can't do this. Well, now she's graduating and I've been able to show her when you came, Grace, this is where you were. Do you remember? And look what you can do now. And she was like, wow. So I think those are, I like materials and and assessments that allow us to have flexibility that I can measure progress because sometimes I get caught up and think, are we making any progress? I don't know. But if I go back to things like your deep screening probes for sounds and I go back to the KSPT, then I can see And I even use the Hodson a lot because that really gives you a rating and I can show parents and say, look, they were in the high profound and now we're in the low moderate. So I think that's important for us to know that we're making progress, but also for the parents to be aware that, yes, we're making progress. So those are two of my really favorite, but really you can use anything and it doesn't have to be expensive.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Now, do you have a favorite language material or technique that you'd like to share with us?
1: I think I like. I've been liking more, um, trying to expand into more literacy based. Um, using, I ordered some. I want to say that they're from Lakeshore. They're very easy readers. They start with. Um, I think the level one books actually have the picture. So they have a few basic sight words and then they'll have a picture of the words. So like one of them, you know, like she's eating carrots and so carrots will be a little picture of a carrot. So the cue is to the child that this would be the word. Obviously, they're not ready to read that. And I really have enjoyed whether it's um, so that we can talk about the pictures, we can say, what are they doing? We're looking at the changes from picture to picture, and then we're talking about, well, why do you think they did that? Or do you ever do that? Um, Does your family do that? Do you like carrots? Who else might like carrots? And, you know, what animals like carrots? All of those kinds of things. Um, Really getting more into um, literacy-based that have to do with books and getting a bigger picture, I think, of language has been... A lot of fun for me as a therapist because we did not my training was not in that it um, I don't know that we ever really talked much about books um, way back in the day it was kind of here's the language picture card let's you know show them the picture what are they doing he is eating he is walking that kind of a thing but now to be able to do that and you know we read the story together Then if they're not able to read, then I'm like, now it's your turn. I'm going to have you read, you retell me the story. What do you remember by looking at the pictures and kind of building it from there? So um, that I really like. And I think it makes a connection for kids um, about books, about literature. I love books. One of my favorite things. I love to read. And I think a lot of our kids were in a very um, visual age. Um, whether it's iPads or tablets or whatever, and there's not a lot of book reading to a degree. And I think it's important that we still encourage kids. And that's where kids get vocabularies from books. And that you can really engage in a book and go somewhere, you know, wow, they're going here and they're doing this. Um, Not that you can't do that and that there aren't apps and different things that are you know, part of technology. But for me, I'm old school. To me, there's nothing like a great book. In fact, I was just at a workshop and I've never heard of this book. And I don't know if you have either, Shar. It's called The Fourth Little Pig. (laughs) No. And it's, it's, oh my goodness. It's, I even went on Amazon last night because I just have to have it. Yeah. The Fourth Little Pig. So the assumption is the three little pigs are all boys. And the fourth little pig is a girl. And so she goes to her brother's house to knock on the door. And of course, they think it's the wolf and they're not planning on coming out. And so she starts to have a conversation with them about what is the matter with you? The wolf is gone. You need to get over your fear and you need to come outside, which eventually she convinces them and they come outside and they see that. No, the wolf is gone and there's no need to hide out in their house. And it is the most adorable story and the rhyme of the story. It's very simple text, but it by far is one of the cutest books that I had seen in a long time. And also one I'm familiar that's with, it's called Franklin in the Dark Mm -hmm. about a turtle and how afraid he is of being in his shell at night um, because it's dark and he goes through all of his animal friends and the lion's like, well, I can give you, um, earphones because I don't like loud noises and different things. And, and he's like, Franklin's like, no, no, I don't think that's going to help. So he goes through all these friends. And finally the end is, um, he goes into a shell and he has a nightlight. light. <laughs> and now he's not afraid of the dark anymore, so those are the kinds of things that I see with books that really engage kids, and they certainly engage me, Um, and I think that's something always to try and include, and it's amazing how much kids like to listen to that, and I think we forget that. We forget to talk and talk about stories, and what do you think is going to happen, and yet that's what they're being required in the classroom. Tell me, Tell me what you think will be happening. Why do you think that? What tells you that? And that, again, is that link. Let's make it real world. Let's make it part of what they're already learning to bolster those skills, but also meet the needs that they have in language.
0: Excellent. Okay, Erica, we are nearing the end. I do have one more question for you. Okay. And that is, do you have a favorite story about you or a child or something
1: that happened that you'd like to share with us I do I mean there's been so many and I have to say the stories or funny things that happen are the things that will keep me going for weeks I may have one once every month and maybe not even that often but I can look back and go that's why I do this job so I had a situation with a parent, um, with a student, and the mother wanted her student assessed, so I assessed her, and it was time for the meeting, and I was new to this school, and I'd only met the parent just to sign for assessment, and I really didn't know her, hadn't had a lot of interaction with her, and so it's time for the meeting, and at one of my schools, it's somewhat of a challenge to get parents to show up and remind them, and so the teachers helping me, and we see whom we think is the parent there. And so we're, you know, reminding her through the gate, remember, we have, you know, Alyssa's meeting today. And so whom we think is the mother? Yes. Okay. So she comes to the meeting. We all meet. It's the teacher. It's myself. It's the administrator. It's, I'll put in quotations, the parent and we carry on the meeting and she tells us how she's doing and, you know, very, very informative. And, excuse me, the, the, um, little girl did not qualify for services. And so that was fine. And we signed the IEP and she left and we gave her copies and we're getting up to walk out of the room. And the teacher looks at me and she says, are you sure that was the parent? And I said, well, yeah, I mean, she knew all this about, you know, Alyssa and sure. And the principal says, I don't know. And I said, what do you mean you don't know? I said, I've only seen her once or twice. Of course she'd be the parent. Like, Am I now supposed to say, are you the parent? (laughs) And so anyway, we start and the teacher kept saying, I'm not sure if that's the parent. So we do a little investigating and it's like, hmm, well, about two days later, the parent called and said, well, when are we going to meet on my child? And I was like, what? We went back and looked and, um, as it turned out, it was the babysitter who knew that somebody had to come to the meeting. So she came to the meeting, never stating anything that she was not the parent. Oh, my God. Signed, signed the parent's name. Um, as we investigated closer, we saw that she didn't spell it correctly, but she did sign the name, took all the paperwork home and gave it to the mother. And the mother, I think the thing that startled me the most is the mother was not at all upset that the babysitter had signed her name, as if she was the mother, the mother just wanted to know, so when are we meeting? And I just was like, oh, my goodness, what do I do? Like, how do you fix this from a legal standpoint? Right. I I just was like, okay. So I went to and the principal had met quite frequently with the mother. And so I went to him and I said, this is in your ballpark now. I said, you have met with this woman repeatedly. You should have known this was not the parent. I said, I've seen her twice, so I'm off the hook for this one. So I said, I'm going to let you talk with the mother. And so we ended up meeting again with the parent, and I was so thankful that the child had not qualified, so I had not provided services illegally. But I just remember, I know the babysitter had spent obviously a lot of time with her because she could tell us a lot of information about her that sounded like what a parent would know. And the mom was fine with it. But it's one of those things that I will never forget. Like, And I got teased ruthlessly about, you had the babysitter sign and you didn't know it was the parent. So my my take from that is, Just be prepared. Anything can happen. And I laugh about it now. But I was just like, how do I what should I tell the district? Like, what do we do? And so what did we do? We were honest. And we said it politely in the notes that, you know, the babysitter had come and we just kind of went on with it because you just never know what's going to happen.
0: No, you don't. You have to be prepared for anything
1: and everything, don't you, Erica? That is correct. <laughs> yep. And actually, it gives you a lot to talk about. Some of the stories people have said, you should <laughs> write a book. And I'm sure, Shar, you could write That's a book right. of all your experiences. Yes. So.
0: We all could. Well, Erica, thank you so much. This has been delightful. I appreciate your knowledge and all of your insights about working in the schools and working with the kids and the parents and the teachers. Very, very good. And thank you for your resources as well. So I just like to let you know that I appreciate you very much. And thank you so much. Take care. Well, thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the speech link. Please check out my other offerings at my website, sharpbysharp.com and also speechtherapypd.com. See you next time for more interviews, information, and insights. Until then, thank you so much for all that you do with your speech kids. Be well and God bless.